0: Welcome to another episode of The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I'm your new host, Haley Lemieux, and this week we will be focusing on the presidential primary election in the United States. This episode will be brought to you in three segments, so first we will hear an interview conducted by Rose Venon of Dr. Desmond King, a professor of American government at the University of Oxford, wherein we'll discover how the U.S. election fits into the world at large. Next, we will hear a variety of student voter perspectives on the Democratic primary as I sit down in conversation with Bobby Puckett, Brian McGrill, and Sam Sussman. And finally, we listen to Rose check in with Varen Menon, a student at the University of Pennsylvania and former news anchor at Talk WRNR, who will describe some of the key issues shaping this presidential race. turn our attention to how the U.S. presidential election process fits into the context of the wider world. Rose Vennon spoke to Professor Desmond King, who is a professor of American government, a professorial fellow at Nuffield College, a director of graduate studies, and emeritus fellow at St. John's College. Let's listen to that now.
1: Are there any effects on the presidential race of the institutional framework that differentiate the this race from I don't know a race in the UK or in mm-hmm. other European countries.
2: Uh, I think there are two two things at least. One is that it's 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 a very individualist based campaign. The the party affiliation is known but is less significant to the candidates because they're vying to become head of the state, president. Uh, and secondly, money features in the campaign in a way which is quite unique. The candidates have less and less restrictions on how much money they can raise and how much money they can spend, and the uh, role of groups trying to influence the process by supporting their candidates through generous campaign contributions and by setting up supporting organisations known as um, political action committees, super PACs, uh, is vast compared to other countries. We're we're talking about um, millions and millions tens of millions of dollars being spent in these in the campaign the regulation of campaign contribution finance has been increasingly diluted since the 1970s with the decisive Supreme Court case in 2010 making it much easier for candidates to to benefit from uh, large donations donations either large donations or or donations from many many individuals but money is distinct. Uh, why is money so important? Because running for the election is a massive task. You have got 50 states to cover. You have to concentrate on some of them. The, uh, the candidates use a lot of money to spend on uh, advertising, TV advertising in particular, which is extremely expensive in the states that they want. Lobbying organizations see campaign contributions as an opportunity to try to influence the candidates. Uh, before they're elected they try to pick the right ones and then expect some payback for them.
1: Okay, thank you very much. And is there, I mean, now that we're comparing uh, the US to maybe the rest of the world, is there anything else that you think distinguishes, maybe in the campaign themes, that distinguishes the US, um, for example, from a a campaign, from a race, um, non-presidential race Mm -hmm. um, in the UK? or Is there something that is a key focus that comes up repeatedly, that we've seen come back repeatedly in past elections and that you think is going to probably come up in this election, too.
2: Well, I think there are probably two answers to that. One is about what comes up explicitly. Concepts of patriotism and definition of Americanism or being an American or Americanization are prominent in a way that you don't find in other countries to the same extent. It's a much more explicit discussion. You do find countries like France will have an argument about um, becoming to immigrant-dominated, but that's presented in different sorts of reasons to the way it appears in the U.S. Second is the silence about racial inequality in the election campaigns. We're in the middle of a, of a new civil rights protest movement since August 2014 where Michael Brown was killed by police in Ferguson uh, with continuing incidences and other sorts of issues coming up now at the university level. Uh, but that that is an issue which is of no interest to almost 70% of white voters, so it tends not to get any credence in the election process. In contrast, some, are, some issues do recur which are of continuing interest, such as regulation, trade deals, immigration levels and uh, security. The Paris events have had an enormous effect on the election campaign, uh, particularly amongst the Republican candidates who have now suddenly responding to public concerns which place security above economic issues as the number one priority. That's what that's what the public opinion polls are sharing. And the candidates have responded to this by taking um, robust lines on uh, how they will deal with the threat of terrorism domestically and how they would deal with it externally.
1: Thank you very much. And my last question will be um, you've mentioned, one of the things um, that has been repeatedly mentioned is obama's legacy what will and in the debates because there have been numerous debates so far um so what will what will we remember of obama's presidency and of course on the republican side there have been a lot of criticisms what do you what according to you is obama's obama's presidency's legacy so what do you think will be looked at back upon and be a key um some key defining features of it
2: complex question but there are some some measurable uh, legacies and some um rather more nebulous ones. The most powerful measurable one is um, his enactment of the Affordable Health Care Act, which is a, a massive achievement in the sense that presidents since Truman, which is the late 1940s, have been trying to enact some sort of universal health care program. And he succeeded despite the opposition of Congress. He also Um, signed off a major financial regulation law called the Dodd-Frank Act in response to the 2008 crisis. He has also succeeded in removing the um, US presence in Iraq and Afghanistan to a large extent. Not Not as much as he said he would, but some soldiers are going to be left in Afghanistan for another few years, but a massive reduction. And he has stood back from a direct on-the-ground um, troop engagement with complex problems in the Middle East, which for which he's now been criticised, but for which history may say it was a reasonable stance to take because the, uh, the object of what could be defeated is not very clear. Domestically, he began on a wave of um, high rhetoric about representing a post-racial era in America, the election of an African-American to the White House, which on its own is one of the most historically important aspects of his presidency. Nonetheless, um, public opinion polls show quite a decline in in the apparent post racial views, the idea that, that Americans now saw things less in terms of race. Opinion polls in the last two years reverse this and show that racial divisions underlie and and overlap with partisan divisions um, to, a, to a very strong extent. I think there are lots of other aspects of his administration which we won't know about uh, for a while, such as education policy, such as economic stimulus. There, That is, we won't know about their full effects until, um, until later. The one area that he's battling at the end of his administration, uh, well, I guess there are two areas in foreign policy he's trying to deal with the, the rise of the uh, Islamic uh, state and its threats. And... Also in foreign policy, he's trying to complete trade deals. A major trade deal with Asian countries called the Pacific Trade Arrangement, trade agreement, and also there's a trade agreement with the European Union, but that's probably on that's hold. Yeah. So I think these are these are uh, important legacies of his of his administration.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us and for giving us your time.
2: Not at all. Thank you very much.
0: students at Oxford University
3: I'm Bobby Puckett I'm studying the infill and international relations and I'm from Kentucky hi
4: I'm Sam Sussman from New York doing the infill in international relations uh, part of Democrats abroad I uh,
5: worked on the Obama campaign in 2012 my name is Brian I'm from uh, Virginia and I'm doing a PPE here at Oxford and also involved in Democrats abroad
0: Okay, and if you just want to talk about who you think you'll vote for in the Democratic primary.
5: So I'm a Bernie Sanders uh,
4: supporter for a number of reasons. I think his record of consistency on the issues that matter most is tremendous. Uh, Campaign finance reform, universal health care, addressing income inequality. I think he's speaking to these issues in a way that's unique, not just in the Democratic Party, but in American politics and I think that Bernie's consistency going back to the 1960s when he was uh, a student uh, organizing for the civil rights movement um, is really
5: remarkable and unique and so he absolutely has my vote. This is a really uh, tough one for me, I'm actually not sure what I'm going to vote for, still making up my mind. I do think that uh, Hillary Clinton would be a better nominee than Bernie Sanders would. I see the closest historical uh, precedent as George McGovern in 1972, who got 39, I think, percent of the vote and got crushed by Richard Nixon, not exactly a political, you know, uh, a huge political talent. And so uh, I can't prove to you that that Bernie wouldn't start a revolution like he's kind of talking about, but I think it's unlikely, right? I think that uh, evidence suggests that the biggest penalty that uh a, uh, a nominee from one of the major parties could carry is being perceived as outside of the ideological mainstream, I think that that label would eventually attach to Bernie Sanders. I don't put a lot of stock in polling that's happening right now that shows, oh, maybe Bernie's doing really well, but nobody really, you know, most Americans don't really know who he is. I think, as you saw a lot of attack ads and things like that, that his numbers would go down, that people would perceive him as extreme, whether it's true or not. I think that's what the perception would be. And look, I think at rock bottom... House of Representatives is very likely to be controlled by the Republican Party. So in effect, both Bernie Sanders and Joe Clinton are going to be pulling as progressively as they can, as pulling things as far to the left as they can. So in terms of the actual policies that, that they could get enacted, I don't think that there would be a ton of difference. I'm not sure who I'll vote for, but um, I think that if I voted for Bernie, I would kind of be like, vote Bernie, but hope Hillary sort of deal. You know.
3: Yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to echo Brian on the the and maybe a lot of the Democratic primary electorate right now, just because I identify with the cliche, the whole uh, my heart's with Bernie and my head is with Hillary sort of thing that everybody says. And I actually got my absentee ballot in the mail the other day, but I won't have to vote till May if it still goes on in the Kentucky primary. So it made me realize that I haven't made a decision yet because I was like, oh, if I send it in early, who am I gonna vote for? And the Bernie thing is interesting because. He has a lot of support from young people, but there are other demographics where he doesn't, and I think that will play out after New Hampshire and Iowa, so I'll just have to wait. But um, I actually don't know who I'm going to vote for.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of very much in the same boat where I do like Bernie, and I do have reservations about Hillary Clinton, but I also have reservations about Bernie Sanders that make it difficult for me to commit to him. Like I do have concerns about his electability in the national public, even though, you know, you've seen those polls where it's like, oh, against Donald Trump or against Marco Rubio, Bernie Sanders will be the winner. But I don't think you can take much stock in those polls right now, especially when people aren't actually faced with the two contenders.
3: What what do you all make of, make of the so you have Senator Clay McCaskill coming out this week saying that Bernie would ruin the Democratic uh, down ticket in the Congress and actually Democrats would be elected less if he was a nominee. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think that there are a host
4: of arguments that range from Claire McCaskill's idea that Bernie will hurt the ticket in, in house races to what we've heard from Brian and others about the George McGovern comparison. But I want to make an argument that we should err on the side of our values. Look, in 1972, U.S. politics was in a very different place. The electorate was alienated with liberal politics. This was the decline of liberalism after the Great Society. It was a backlash to the civil rights movement. It was a backlash to the expansion of the federal government in almost every domain uh, of public life and McGovern represented uh, the new right, uh, making its case to the public that we needed to move beyond those sorts of liberal policies. I think we're in a very different historical moment right now. Um, I think that instead of being alienated from those sorts of public policies, Americans are looking for them. They're pleased with the Obama administration accomplishments, but want more when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to income inequality, when it comes to social mobility, and when it comes to opportunity. People are looking for something more and Bernie represents that. Now, sure, we don't know if what the effect is going to be down the line on uh, House races. We can't maybe can't trust the national polls that show that Bernie does better than Hillary uh, against every Republican candidate. There are uncertainties, absolutely. But we should also remember that Hillary Clinton has been a tremendously divisive figure in American politics for the past 25 years. And this idea that she's going to be some profound uniter, I'm very skeptical towards it. And so, while there are things I respect about Hillary Clinton, in this election, I think Democrats would do best to err on the
5: side of our values. So I think a couple things. One, I think that Hillary kind of gets demonized unfairly, right? Like, um, if you look at her record, I mean, things like the Children's Health Insurance Program—that's that was a huge policy when her the healthcare plan that she put out uh, in '92, '93, '90, somewhere around '94 was far to the left of what Obama ended up passing in Obamacare, right? So I think that this idea that she's somehow this, like, corporate, like she's just going to sell out the le- uh, the left wing is kind of, like, unfair to her. I think when it comes to Bernie at the end of the day, I think we basically agree is that he's a risk, right? It's possible, right, that he, that he would run better than Hillary, that the electorate has changed to the point that a, a socialist would actually do, you know, somebody who calls himself socialist would actually do better than would... Hillary Clinton, whatever. Um, The question is just like, do you think that, what do you think is more likely? And I think it's more likely that that Democrats would pay an ideological penalty like Senator McCaskill pointed out and, and down the ballot and also in the presidential race. And so really the question is like, do you think Bernie Sanders is a risk worth taking? And I think based on the differences I've seen in what they would be able to actually get accomplished, I don't think the differences are so vast that it's worth kind of like taking the risk that Bernie Sanders would represent, so, so kind of that's that that's really where I'm at.
3: I think it's worth pointing out that I think Bernie has been more successful than people ever thought it would be. But I think if we think of short term and long term, short term he's made Hillary go more to the left than she probably imagined to go on more progressive, like you guys have talked about the income inequality, et cetera. And then long term, depending on what happens in the election, I think moving moving the American public toward accepting more left ideas in this sort of democratic, socialist label, which already exists, accepting that, then hopefully it will be good for the long term, no matter what happens.
4: I I think that the impact of Bernie's election, or his candidacy, rather, goes far beyond this election, Mm -hmm. um, to show that there is strong public support for the sort of ideas that he's talking about, and there's a yearning for the sort of conviction that his career and his candidacy embody. And you see that in his consistency, and you also see it in the fact that he's not... Uh, using a super PAC, and he's raised uh, more contributions from more individuals than any candidate in American history. That's showing progressives at the state level, at the national level, that there are different ways to run races and be successful. So in terms of both campaign strategy, but also the ideas that he's running on, I think his impact in the long term uh, on the millennial generation really can't be understated. I mean, what it means for us uh, the first generation to be politically engaged after the Cold War, to know that, okay, now you can stand up and say, I'm a democratic socialist, um, I have nothing to do with um, gulags or Stalin, but I'm, <laughs> uh, but I'm bothered by income inequality, and I think everyone should have health care, and I believe uh, in an America that holds more true to its values of social mobility and equal opportunity, and democratic socialism is one way of expressing those values. And I think that impact on the long term can be incredibly profound.
3: We should point out then the the support for Sanders and then the the other side, you know, the division of the country, if we're talking long term, is is the country going to be more divided with the political parties going more and more to the right and the left and less in the center?
4: I think Brian's comparison to 1972 is very interesting because I think like 1972, um, we're coming out of a period of huge expansion of the federal government to try to address some of the most serious problems our country faces. And I think in that historical moment there was huge backlash, which Trump's campaign very much echoes. Um, This notion of losing our country, this notion of minorities taking over, um, of course government being too big, etc. There are very strong parallels in that racially inspired populist backlash. Um, Him and Nixon even use similar sorts of language. And I think what's interesting is that in this moment, what we're seeing in the democratic primary and what I think we're seeing polls show across the country is that people want more progressive activism, not less. I do think that the demographics are very different in 1972. The demographic segment that is echoing the sort of Nixon-Trump perspective is shrinking. Um, the demographic that's echoing a, a desire for increased government activism and a more equal society, that demographic is growing. Um, and I think that's ultimately a good thing for progressive politics. It's a good thing for a diverse society. Uh, it makes me very optimistic about the future of the Democratic Party.
0: Yeah, so do we want to segue into talking about the Republicans, maybe semi-objectively, mm-hmm. as we're all <laughs> registered? Biased. Yeah. <laughs> um, just yeah. Just your general thoughts on the Republican campaign at the moment, and maybe what you foresee happening. <laughs> Look, I, if, to me,
5: uh, it's Donald Trump seems like, uh, it, I'm incredulous, but definitely seems like the front runner. It's hard to see. I mean, he could win all four of the first states, Iowa, New Hampshire. He's a legitimate chance. And he probably, he's heavily favored, right? New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, and Nevada. I don't know how somebody who wins those first four states how somebody beats them in the end, so I, that's crazy. There's interesting debates happening, but it's being kind of screwed up by the fact that Trump, who I don't even know what what he thinks about a lot of issues, it's really hard to pin it down, is, is looking more and more like, He's he's got a good chance to just run away with it before the before the primaries really even get going. So I don't know. What do you guys think about
0: that? But I mean, all the Republican, up until March 14th, they're all proportional except for South Carolina, I believe. Yeah. So even if he does win, right now he's polling at about 26%. Right. And like an Iowa Cruz is just behind that. In New Hampshire, he's, like Trump is just ahead of that. So even if he does win in these early states, I don't think it's going to translate that much in terms of... Points? For sure, but
5: but then you have to be like, okay, Trump wins all these states, but then some other candidate like gets the mo- gets somehow gets momentum, mm-hmm. somehow wins all these delegates. So it's, it's not like Trump is going to build up such a huge lead in delegates that it's going to be insurmountable. No way will that happen. I just don't see a plausible path where somebody else comes into the picture. Although I don't know, I think I mean Rubio still has a I think a decent. A decent chance to be the nominee it's just hard for me to see how that happens especially if trump wins those first four states
0: well you can think about it like remember in 2008 rick santorum won in iowa and that ended up being pretty much meaningless so or sorry in 2012, 2012. Yeah. yeah 2012 like everyone was talking about who came in third in iowa so that's still very much a part of the conversation mm-hmm. if oh, like, rubio is third in iowa and then if you think about states like florida where he's the representative when that's a winner-take-all state, Mm -hmm. you can win a ton of delegates from those later states that are bigger in the Mm -hmm. Republican Party.
3: When we're talking about the Republicans, what's interesting is the whole establishment, quote-unquote, backlash. Because I think even this week, the National Review, a conservative uh, magazine, came out with like 20, or not 20, a bunch of people who who were from the establishment, like Glenn Beck, and it was an anti-Trump, the whole, the whole thing was people writing against how we should not, we being a Republican party should not vote for Trump and this sort of thing. So I think this whole establishment slash non-establishment, for lack of better terms, is only increasing, right, as we go to the, the polls. To change, if we're talking about this, the strategy of the, of the party in the long term, what we should be looking at, I mean, beyond the presidential election, I think what is equally important, if not more so, is... The states, I think 31 states are controlled by Republicans right now. The party's going to have to do something about looking at the down, you know, the state legislatures, the governors, and that sort of thing. And that's just as important as the presidential one.
5: Yeah, I think that if you actually, everybody's looking at the Republican race and definitely Democrats are kind of like, ha-ha, like, look at how dysfunctional it is. But if you had to pick which party you'd rather be going with the selected cycle, I think for sure you'd pick the Republican party, right? Because they've got a functional lock on the House of Representatives, probably. Maybe, it seems like, if they nominate Trump Cruz, maybe not, but still probably a functional House of of Representatives, control of all of these states, and, like, a decent, I think everybody would agree, a decent chance to win the presidency. Whereas Democrats might be favored to win the presidency, but we've got no shot to get all of these other things back.
0: Well, I think a lot of it is just gerrymandering. The Republicans have worked really hard to get control of these state legislatures, where they can then control how the districts are drawn and create more Republican districts than there were previously. And just to wrap up, if you guys can briefly talk about um, one thing that surprised you most about the election?
3: The thing that has surprised me the most is the fact that somebody like Bernie and Trump in the post-Citizens United era, I think they have spent either the least or relied the least on corporations and big, big money donors. And I think that's, I mean, I don't think anybody expected that, especially so soon after Citizens United in 2012 when it was the most expensive election right ever. So that would be my, my, my vote for most surprising thing.
4: What surprised me most is how so many, and especially in the media, have dismissed the notion that Sanders has brought to bear that um, citizen activism doesn't really matter after the election. I agree that the word revolution might be a little silly in this context. But the idea isn't silly at all. The best things um, that we have as Americans were built by dedicated social movements of citizens. It's true, women's suffrage, civil rights, LGBT rights, healthcare, every single major progressive accomplishment we have in this country was because citizens organized for themselves. It never came from the top. So to hear the media be so dismissive of this idea that citizen mobilization might matter might mean something has been disappointing and and that's probably the thing that
5: surprised me most (laughs) Donald Trump is definitely the
4: most surprising (laughs) thing so I'll just be short
5: and sweet (laughs) for sure Donald (laughs) Trump
0: okay great thank you guys so much for um, talking about this our final segment. The Oxford International Relations Society has a partnership with Spectre Magazine at the University of Pennsylvania. Rose spoke to Varun Menon, a student at UPenn, for a final student voter perspective on this election.
1: So I'm joined now with Varun. Thank you very much for joining us. What do you think the key themes of the campaign so far have been?
6: Well, Rose, thank you very much for having me on Beacon. I'm honor to be on the podcast. I think that some of the main themes of this election have certainly been, I think, you you have to put immigration as probably the number one issue. I would say that it's probably not the most important issue for the nation as a whole, or really for voters in general. That would always be the economy and jobs. But immigration remains, obviously, a very emotional topic for Americans. It's always been a significant part of the public discourse for, well, since the country started. So, I anticipate that with the rise of some of the more populist candidates on the right, uh, immigration will remain uh, an emotional issue that voters are going to hear a lot about as the campaign continues. I would say another very important issue has been the economy and jobs, obviously, which I think is going to determine the election, as it almost always does, so that many of the voters were really looking at their stock portfolios and where their jobs are going and where the economy is going, they can see how the candidates are going to react to those very serious issues rather than some of the more emotional issues such as the religious issues or the immigration issues, some of the more emotional aspects. But, you know, every, everything's free game in this election, and I think the themes are still being tied together.
0: And that final thought wraps up our podcast for this week. If you would like to hear more from Varen and from Dr. Desmond King, you can find links to their full interviews in the description of the podcast. Thank you so much to Professor Desmond King, Bobby Puckett, Brian McGrail, Sam Sussman, and Varen Menon for all taking the time to speak with us. Thank you also to podcastthemes.com for our intro music, and a big thank you to our sponsors Morgan Stanley, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and the University of Kent. Get involved with Oxford International Relations Society by going to our website, oxirsoc.com, finding us on social media, or submitting something to our blog. Next week, we'll be returned with a podcast on the recent shift in Latin American politics away from the left. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Until next time.